The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Where did you go to be aware of awareness? Well, that's actually really the central question and the central teaching of this teacher that I'm here to share some thoughts with you about. His teaching is all about being aware of awareness. And he teaches even the beginning meditation students when they are doing formal sitting meditation, he encourages them from the first day not to return to the sensations of breath in the body, but rather to the awareness of the sensations of the breath in the body. Um... As Kevin said, I'm the uh, uh, guiding teacher and founder of the Rochester Meditation Center that was started in 2004 already. And um, I've been meditating since my mid-20s or so. Uh, Kevin mentioned that I was a reporter at the New York Times. I was a reporter at the New York Times at, at the age of 24. Um, and um, I was a reporter there for 10 years, and I started meditating because I had a stressful job, <laughs> and I really needed to uh, know how to uh, calm down and be calm. Um, I've, did, I've done so many different styles of meditation over the years. Starting around the mid-'90s, I started doing insight meditation, and then starting around the mid-2000s, I started going on an annual 10-day silent meditation retreat um, uh, here in Minnesota. And then sometime around 2011-2012, I, I learned about this teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, through my insight meditation teacher, Steve Armstrong, and Kamala Masters. And their annual retreats started to reflect more and more of his style of teaching. And since around 2013, I started to shift more towards his style of meditation or to incorporate his style of meditation very much so into my daily practice. In 2013, I started sending out a daily uh, practice, email practice message called the Daily Tejaniya, which has now got 1,500 members worldwide on it. And um, I get a lot of, so there'll be two or three. Some of you may be on the, on the list already. Um, it'll be a, uh, two, three, four, f- five sentences at the most from Tejaniya offering a little tidbit of wisdom or a, direct, a meditation direction or a brain teaser of some kind. And um, every day or so, I'll get a question from somebody on that list. 
And uh, I also teach Tejaniya style of meditation in Dharma talks, usually for a couple of months every year. I've been doing that for about four years. So I, I just tell you that to, um, to kind of tell you what my exposure to him has been. There, is a, there are flyers out by the Donna Bowl uh, for the Rochester Meditation Center. And if, at the end of the talk, if you're interested in Tejaniya, the daily Tejaniya email practice reminder, there is a, a website that's given here on the, on the third leaf under the daily Tejaniya. There's a website that's mentioned, and you can go there and sign up. Uh, driving up here, I was just thinking, well, you know, if someone asked me why I found Tejaniya so compelling, I came up with that I personally feel that I haven't found a teacher that describes the way of awareness in a more useful and a more compelling and often a very, to me, very inspiring way. And uh, so I guess that's a way of saying, to, to me, he makes the Buddhist teachings come alive. And I know that uh, I, I, my practice with him deepened as I recognized that he was really serious about uh, teaching people how to be aware from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep, which has been a mantra for me for several years now, since 2013 or so. And I'm also trying to be aware while I'm asleep, too, <laughs> just as a little <laughs> investigation. <laughs> which has taken me into lucid dreaming and various other directions. Now, this is what monks learn in monasteries and have for several thousand years. Well, the Buddha has been around for 1,500 years, and um, in monastic traditions predating the Buddha, you know, it, it's very common. And uh, up until today, if you're a monk or a nun, your practice is to be awake and aware from the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep, every single thing you do. Um, but that hasn't been the case for lay people. Um, and what, what, I, what I see Tejaniya is doing is he's a kind of a second wave in the insight meditation as it's come to the West, because as insight meditation has come to the West up until now, it's still primarily about doing a daily sitting practice for a certain number of minutes per day. Um, and enjoying the benefits of that. Um, but then what do you do the rest of the day? Should you do anything during the rest of the day? And I feel that Tejaniya, Sayadaw Tejaniya has come right in and he's, he's, he's answering that with his teachings. And in a certain way, he's doing no more than what the teachers and the senior monks and, and nuns at monasteries do with their monastics, but he's offering it to lay people in daily life, and he's doing it, I hope to show you with some nice examples here, that it's really possible. And it was the case for me, and I would ask maybe you too, have you ever felt like it's hard to stay aware and mindful at work um, at home with the family, during the commute, um, during conversations, 
maybe you're a teacher and you're speaking to the students and, and uh, all these different daily life situations. Uh, have you tried it? And, and have you had a longing, in a sense, to, to be awake and aware? And after all, isn't it our hope to be awake and aware for our, our whole life? I mean, for every moment of our life, we would like to be here and know what's going on, right? And I did reach a point with my own practice where I just felt like, oh my gosh, there's a teacher who's teaching this. Hip, hip, hooray. And that's, why, that's what got me hooked. And then there were aspects of his teaching that, that kept me going. And I'm still very enthralled with his, his way of teaching and learning from, from his teaching every day. Uh, let me tell you just a little bit about him because it's his, his own personal story is very compelling and has a lot of credibility to, 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 hey, this can actually happen, that we can be awake and aware. And even I'll say the word enlightened uh, because Tejaniya got enlightened in his daily life and he really did have, a, have one. Uh, he, he was, um, he, he's a member of a fairly large Burmese family. He grew up uh, in... Yangon, it's Myanmar, uh, that's the modern name for it, um, formerly Burma, and Yangon was formerly Rangoon. So he grew up in a, a large uh, family in Yangon, and his, uh, they were fairly well-to-do. His dad was a very successful businessman, and he was one of the younger siblings, and he had a lot of successful older siblings, and um, in uh, many interviews, he's been very upfront about the fact that he was a black sheep in the family, and he had a really rough time growing up and well into his late 20s, mid to late 20s. Uh, so while all of his, his uh, older brothers and sisters were getting education and going into professional careers and doing well, he was uh, getting into juvenile delinquency, uh, meaning hanging out with kids in Yangon and getting high. He got addicted to a street opioid called comethazine, um, truancy at school. Um, and as he, uh, at, you know, just doing really poorly at school, I think he somehow got into college, but then he was screwing up so badly, his dad at one point just said, the heck with it, you're going to go and work in the textile stall in the central market, and you're going to run that. And, and so he was, he was taken out of school, so he couldn't finish his education, and he was stuck in this market. And uh, he got super depressed. So in addition to the drug addiction, there was depression, and he also had a raging temper, and everybody in his family was scared of him because he was popping off left and right and throwing things around. And... Uh, so he was quite the basket case, actually. Um, now, in this picture, there was one bright spot, which was that the family had, for even from his boyhood, had struck up a friendship with a renowned uh, meditation master and meditation teacher in Burma called Shui uh, Omin, one of the most famous meditation teachers in the country, and. Uh, Saido's father used to take him to that used to take the family to the monastery, and it turned out that that Saida had a, a real knack for 
for meditation and for sitting, and he loved going to the monastery, and he loved sitting, and he was very good at getting samadhi, deep uh, concentration states. And uh, Shui Omin noticed this, and um, they, there was a bond formed between them um, that was really sweet and nice, and it was the most important relationship um, inside Oz's life. The only problem was every time he went back home, it all disappeared, and he got into trouble again, and he was, he was um, taking drugs again, and, and so on. By the time he was in his um, early 20s and stuck in that textile stall, he just thought his whole life was over because here he was in this miserable little crowded space with you know, thousands of people going by every day and dogs and cats running around and it's noisy and he's depressed because his life isn't working out and his older brother's a famous doctor and all this is going on. And um, what, he, what he literally decided, and all of this, by the way, is spelled out in really interesting detail in this book called When Awareness Becomes Natural, which is his last book. There's a, there's a big old section in here that's just called The Depression. And uh, he had to get out of depression on his own. And he just decided, well, if I can't be at the monastery, I'm going to bring the monastery here. And he started doing practice right there in the textile stall. And there's so many wonderful in- incidents and stories in here about how he did that. And the first big, the first big thing that hit him was, he told, he, there's a little story here, he went into the bathroom one day just completely, he was just disconsolate and worried and anxious and depressed and he went into the bathroom but he took a little Dharma book in there and he's just like reading the words of the Buddha in the bathroom, you know. And suddenly he realizes that in the Satipatthana Sutta the Buddha is saying that no matter who you are and where you are, stay aware continuously. Don't miss a second. And it was like, he woke up in the bathroom right there. <laughs> like, oh, wow, the Buddha is telling me to do what I do at the monastery, but to do it wherever I am in daily life. And so, he, so uh, at that moment, he actually felt awake and aware and alive, and he noticed that, and he goes, oh, that's some good stuff right there, because I just had two or three good seconds. Anybody been depressed here? Isn't it great to have two or three good seconds? (laughs) Don't miss those seconds. And by the way, your mind is going to tell you to fucking forget them immediately. Right? The mind will come along and say, oh, it was only two or three seconds. You know, and I've got the rest of my life to live. (laughs) Maybe I'm the first person to say fuck while sitting right here. What do you think, Kev? <laughs> Probably am. <laughs> Gosh, and now it's going to go on Dharma seed. Oh boy. Well, maybe not, huh? But this was a big, big thing, you know. And um, now, just this, just this series of events that I just mentioned, this was the beginning of his awakening, because there's some steps in there. You know, there's the intention to wake up. He recognized within himself. Uh, there's a sense that I want to be here for my life, you know. And this depression is not the way to go, if at all possible, right? Uh, so, and then he recognized that there were people that had 
a better way than he did, which was in another step, because how many of us have said, there isn't possibly anybody who could help me, but he got over that hump on his own. But that's a, that's a thing to open to. I think that's one of the, isn't that one of the 12 steps too, somewhere in there? And, um, and then he had the presence of mind to notice that if there is a certain, if you take certain steps, you can automatically get a kind of a good, fe- the, the universe in reality will give you some good feedback right away. And he got it in the form of two or three seconds of, of happiness. And basically from then all the way to his enlightenment, he, he was just a matter of extending those three seconds to five seconds to seven seconds to a minute to two minutes and so on. Now when I say enlightenment, I'm not talking about anything lofty. Um, I don't know what enlightenment is in any lofty sense. But I know that Sayadaw went from being a miserable, depressed uh, person with a trigger temper who everybody in his family basically was scared of him and complained about him. He became a happy, smiling, wise person that everybody in his family is proud of him. And... um, and uh, he, he's like a, he's just got that giggly, he's actually giggly. I've been on retreat with him. He's kind of got that Dalai Lama quality. He's giggling all the time, you know. He's got this uh, wonderful sense of humor. And uh, he's got a real light touch. And he's just like an endless, just an endless source of um, patience and, and wisdom. So I'll call that Enlightenment. You know, that's all I need. And he calls it enlightenment too. And he says it's possible. Um, so I feel like his story lends a lot of credibility. And if he can do it under his, in, under his circumstances, right in the middle of a busy textile stall in the central market, uh, we can do it too. There's really so many, like, just little vivid images um, but just the fact that he's so, he's so forthright about the conditions of, of his own life, and he'll, he'll tell, he tells many stories about what he did to keep himself aware. And I, I tell you, I, I get inspired just by that. Like one of the things that he did was um, he, he found, you know, he was always just trying to stay awake and aware, trying to be, to be aware that he's aware, to know where he is, that, and, and to keep track of what's going on in his mind and his body. And he was having difficulty and someone gave him a Vicks inhaler because he had a cold. And he found out if he had the Vicks inhaler, it was like, what, that menthol, that'll wake me right up. So he literally stuck the Vicks inhaler in his nose and left it there all day. You know? and, and he did that for, for a certain period of time, and everybody knew him as the guy who had the Vicks inhaler in his nose <laughs> at the market. And um, We all have to find our own way to wake up. If it takes a Vicks inhaler, you know, yippee. <laughs> Whatever it takes, and for everybody it's going to be different. I, I, I'm inspired by that. Just some courage, you know, that's uh, wrapped up in there. So... Um, He says, forget the idea that meditation happens only on a cushion or in the meditation hall. 
The right time to meditate is all day long, from the moment you fall, from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep. Um, this is an inspirational passage. This is the; these are the first uh, couple of paragraphs from uh, when awareness becomes natural. And I mentioned during the guided meditation and before that a very big component of Sayadaw's teaching is he really stresses uh, this aspect of investigation. So it be, so meditation to him is a very very active process. And he stresses the second uh, quality of mind that you find in one of the Buddha's uh, most famous lists. The list is called the seven factors of enlightenment. And the first factor is awareness, often called mindfulness, sati. And that's the first factor. And um, the second factor is dhamma vichaya, investigation of reality. Now, this list is meant to be sequential. Uh, in other words, it says, as soon as you become aware, start to investigate reality. And don't put it off. Do it. Um, that, and, and that comes even before the development of samadhi, which is the calm uh, state, which comes along later uh, in, that, in that practice. So that tells us something right there. Once you're aware start to investigate. And you can develop samadhi during the investigative process. So what is this Dhamma Vichaya? It's just being curious about your life, about our life, about what this is. And um, those little experiments that I put in at the end of the guided meditation are examples of Dhamma Vichaya that I've learned and that I've developed that have been helpful for me. Um, and, and, for, and for others as well. Like, where do I go if the instruction is to be aware of awareness? What do I do? Where do I go? What, what is that? It, there's both an easy, it's, that answer is both easy, easy and difficult. This whole book and all of his teachings is an answer to that. But it's also just as simple as recognizing that we're aware and relaxing in that. Now, so these first few sentences of his book um, are about this Dhamma-Vichaya quality. And he says, first we must ask ourselves. That's Dhamma-Vichaya right there. It's a question. The way Dhamma-Vichaya shows up in our meditation is for us to literally ask a question while we're meditating. Like the Zen monks who uh, will go off for six months at a time and their teachers to just tell them to ask one question over and over again all day long. What is this? And that's Dhamma Vichaya. Um, that's a practice. Uh, in this case, Saida says, first we must, ask, we must ask ourselves, what is our relationship to reality? I don't know about you guys, but I love that. <laughs> I really wonder about it sometimes, you know? And I love it when a teacher comes along and says, yes, that's the question. And um, it takes some fortitude living in a society that basically tells us not to pay any attention to that question. So for me, that's one reason why I like to come to a place like Common Ground, because I know that everybody else who comes here gives me some juice to pursue that question, because I know that's why we're here. I know that. 
I can feel it, and, and we, all, we all feel that. We want to know, what is this life all about? And why is there so much suffering? And what can we do about it? And by the way, I don't only want to be worried and concerned about my own suffering. What about other people's suffering? And how can I expand my awareness to include them more? And how do I understand my situation more in relationship to them? Because I've kind of noticed that when I pay more attention to other people, I start to feel better. What's up with that? You know what I'm saying? These are, these are the type, this is where these questions start to go. So what is our relationship to reality? What is our understanding of life? From this, we will find meditation is really the only sensible approach to our reality and the problems that can arise from living. We can use it as an escape or avo- avoidance from life, or we can use it as a practice to attend to life. When we start bringing awareness to the way we live, it soon becomes apparent that we really have little understanding of, our, of ourselves or the environment we live in. The problems that we create out of fear, boredom, loneliness, routine, despair, and repetition, to name just a few, are the reality we face. Before we can bring about a shift from this reality, we must first look at what is and understand it. We must look at life as it is and come into intimate contact with it. So, and there's just so much in that. It it, it ended on the word intimacy, which is uh, isn't it another one? Isn't it another longing that we have to be intimate? with this life. And uh, there is a sense that we can drift away from that intimacy. And what happens when that happens is problems. But if we come back to true intimacy with this experience, well, suddenly, everybody else shows up in that intimacy. And it seems there's a possibility of a happy way forward for all. So those few lines uh, to me say a lot about Saida's spirit and the ambiance that he creates for the practice of meditation. Let me just talk for about another 10 minutes or so to give you a couple of just touch points from his teachings and then... um, then let's have some Q&A or so until, until, uh, and some, some discussion until 9 o'clock based on some of the, some of the stories I've told and the, uh, and the teachings I'm, I'm sharing here. So Saido has uh, several books out now, and... Um, you know, he teaches different ways at different times. But one of the most frequent of his teachings talks about uh, the steps of meditation. And he also, he often talks about the very, very, very first step of meditation being to relax. So one of his uh, statements is, relax and be aware. 
you know, I've, I realize that I've, I've spoken a few times tonight about what we most deeply want in life, like to know what this is and to be intimate. How about relaxation? Anybody with me on that one? To be relaxed, to know what real relaxation is. I'm, I'm still working on that, but a one way for me to characterize my experience with meditation going all the way back to uh, the early 1980s is just learning how to relax. And um, there is a lot in, the, in that practice. So Saida says, many meditators think that being aware means focusing on an object with a great deal of energy, like the breath. In fact, exertion like this causes tension because it's the result of desire, aversion, or delusion. Those are the three defilements in, in Buddhism. Or a combination of these three. Like, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in meditation, um, we might have a desire for there, there to be something different. And um, that creates tension. Or we might be averse to something we're feeling, and that creates tension. You know, one of the hallmarks of his teaching is he has a way of putting things and he has a way of saying things that ca- capture your attention like it's like they're Zen koans, you know? And, uh, and they, they really jolt you awake right in, within themselves. I remember that's one of the things that hooked me. Like one of his statements is, wanting a happy life is laziness. I just remember being captivated by that. Like what the heck is he talking about? Um... He also says, when you sit down to sit, don't, set a, don't decide how much time you're going to sit. Don't do that with your formal sitting meditation. Why? Because that introduces some tension into the equation. You know? Like, how many minutes have I got left? That kind of thing. So don't set a limit. That's wonderful, I think, because actually, to me, what that does is oh, I'm here. And, um, and then I start to search for what I like about this experience. And then I can find what I like about it because I'm roaming through my experience with, with the, the kind of searchlight of my awareness. I go, oh, wow, there's that thing in my experience that I really like. And then I meditate to, to stay there and to stay in that. That's, that's an example, actually, of wholesome desire. The Buddha himself taught um, in his steps of meditation. You sit down, you watch the breath, and then you, you notice that it is, it's natural. When we sit down and bring our awareness back here to, to the mind and the body, there's a natural thing that happens, which is pleasure starts to come up. And it's an instruction to look for that pleasure and to relax into it. So here's what, so going on the topic of relaxation, Saida says, instead, as you maintain continuous awareness of whatever is happening, strike a balance between being relaxed and being interested. So there's that Dhammavichaya again, right at the beginning. Stay interested. Even if you're sitting and you start to get sleepy in meditation, get interested in your sleepiness. Like, what is that? What is that sleepiness? And he often will say, like, don't just notice what's there, but inquire a little bit as to what were you doing prior that made that thing happen? 
like the sleepiness. Well, maybe it's just you didn't get enough sleep last night. But maybe there's something that you would really rather not face in your experience and you notice that the body and the mind is making you sleepy kind of as a way of avoiding that. Now, just to notice that is enough. You don't have to go judgmental on yourself at that point. you know. But just to notice that, oh, my goodness, look at that. This system shuts me down. There's some wiring or some kind of thing going on here. When I come back with a wholesome intention to just notice what's happening in the present moment with my reality, there's something in the system that really doesn't like me to do that and shuts me down. Um, to notice that is a good thing. And that's all you need to do is notice it. So being relaxed and being interested. That also says, like, don't get so interested like you're asking 100 questions and get, you know, like, then you're not going to be relaxed anymore if you're, like, panting after an answer. That's not the type of interest you want. You, t- you want the type of interest that you're, you're actually in a kind of very, I almost said lazy, but at least a very relaxed way, just sort of noticing What's in my experience that could answer my question? He says, when you are relaxed, it is easier to be aware, and it becomes an enjoyable, pleasant, and interesting experience. Cultivate your interest in being aware by noticing when interest is present and when it is not. Bring in some interest if it is missing. So he often says, if your meditation is feeling a little flat, just drop in a question, just a question, and attend to that. Interest brings energy to the mind naturally without straining, focus, or exertion. It requires no individual effort, and so we can do it continuously without getting tired. In fact, observing like this gives us energy and joy. So relaxation is, is, a, is a, key, a key part of his uh, teaching, and uh, he often puts it right at the beginning. The first thing to do is to relax and then be aware. Now, I'd like to share, maybe this will be the last thing I mention, and then we can open it up to some questions and some discussion. Um, I'm going to read you a sentence that, to me, is one of these sentences that really represents the way Sayadaw can, um, can, uh, he can express a, 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 a truth about meditation the way the Buddha taught it, but he does it in a way that is very vivid and arresting and also very often very contemporary, like addressed to our conditions today in the language of today. And he says, in this case, in meditation, when investigating the mind, there's Dhammavichaya again, it is only important to recognize when there is identification with an object and when there is not. It is the meditator's job to stay with awareness and not be so concerned with the object itself or to immerse into the object. Just remember to be aware. These few sentences actually encapsulate and distillate uh, his entire teaching. But the thing I want to uh, draw attention to is that first sentence where he says, in meditation, when investigating the mind, it is only important to recognize when there is identification with an object and when there is not. Wow. 
to me, that was a real eye-opener when I saw that. And it, was, it gave me a new way to understand the Four Noble Truths of suffering and open a door that I'm happily walking through now and trying to explore and see what I can learn um, about this whole process of identification. Because what he's saying here is, when we identify, we suffer. When we don't identify, we don't suffer. To me, that's an invitation to explore what is this process of identification. And to me, it opens to the question of, to this whole big discussion that society is having today about identity in so many ways. And it drops in uh, a potent tool, I think, for understanding so many of the debates we're having today uh, in, in so many areas. And uh, like the whole question about the polarization of society, uh, the growing, uh, uh, you know, gap in equality in so many ways, um, identity politics. Um, I know Common Ground is a one of the, you know, it's a leader as a as a meditation center in grasping and coming to grips with the issue of um, white privilege. And um, there's a question about. Identity is a thread through all of these discussions. It's a very critical thing. And here's the Buddha come along, and he's basically saying, if you identify as anything, you suffer. Um, there are some things that are healthier to identify with others, and you can actually find in Buddhist teachings as well. There, you know, as a kind of mid-step, and sometimes you can go a long way just by identifying with healthy things like nature like clouds or rivers, or awareness itself. Um, but can you sense how even identifying a little bit creates a kind of a tension, right? Like, oh, I'm this. The minute you think I'm this, then I need to defend that. And then we're off to the races, right? Even if I'm walking around and thinking I'm a cloud, there could be a situation where I have to defend being a cloud, <laughs> sort of like, you know? So um, this is a, a you know just just one of the this this just the way he said it um, to me opens doors and he expounded more but um, I offer that to you as you know an example of uh, uh, how he teaches. Um, he did mention the word object in here and before we open it up a little bit, it might be good to just um, clarify that. When he talks about objects, or when mm, any teacher talks about object, objects are often posited as a kind of opposite to awareness. So that, for instance, at any given moment of life, and we can investigate this, we can notice that there's only two things that are apparent in our, in our experience. And one is the object that we're noticing that is being noticed. Like right now, I'm noticing the group of you and um, the whiteness of the walls and the lamps and the energy in the room and the attentiveness that you're giving to me. I can notice all of those things. Because they are being noticed, they're called objects in the lingo. But the other thing to notice, and this is what no one tells us how to do until we come to a meditation center, 
The other thing that's present is awareness itself. It's, it's that which notices all these things. And what is that? Whew. Is that an object too? Can you look at that? And if not, how can we learn anything about awareness if it can't be looked at like an object? Because we were taught through, through our school and from our parents and everything else, we were always taught to learn about things by looking at them with our consciousness, but no one ever told us how to do this with that beam, that searchlight, and look back and see what that is. But that's what meditation is. That's what the Buddha is teaching. And that's what uh, Saito is teaching um, in the way that he teaches. So maybe that's enough, just as a kind of a quick intro on some touch points. And uh, what, what have these reflections um, brought up for you, or what questions might you have, or what observations might you want to share? What is the difference between merging and non-duality and intimacy and identification? The first one was merging. Is that that right? Merging Merging. and the experience of non-duality. Can you have non-duality without subject and object becoming something of a... Mm. So of that list of words that you gave, I guess the one that pops out to me is is non-duality, and that is to be uh, contrasted with, um, what was that last word in that? In that? Merging and non-duality, or yes. intimacy and identification. Yeah, identification, yeah. I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit, because whether, or, whether, whether Sayadaw is a non-dual teacher or not is a matter of discussion among his students. And it kind of touches on um, kind of intramural Buddhist debate to s- somewhat, because he comes out of a t- tradition, the Theravada tradition, which is traditionally recognized as dual. Um, for instance, just to say there's awareness and the object is a duality. And um, that we're here, but we're shooting for nirvana, which, nibbana, which is there. That's a duality. We are, we're this now, but we can be that in the future. That's a duality. I'd kind of like to answer your question without trying to uh, bring up those uh, structures, you know, and those definitions. I'd rather answer from my own experience. Um, I feel that that Saida does teach non-duality uh, insofar as he stresses over and over again that the only thing we ever experience or know is experience itself. So, for example, he says, one of his pithy statements is, reality is not solid, quote, unquote. Saida Tejaniya. Reality is not solid. What does he mean by that? Like, that lectern seems solid to me, right? It's like I pick it up, it seems to have weight. When I knock on it, my hand's not going through it. my eyes tell me that it has shape and form and color, and that all seems like objectness. And that seems different from um, awareness, which is, seems to be empty and clear and uh, pure in itself and non-grasping. But, the, but in Saito's practice, what he says is, he'll, he'll say, ask the question, what is this? 
you know, this experience I'm having, picking this thing up, touching it, and so on. And to have that experience, putting your thoughts about the experience aside. Because your thoughts, they are part of your experience, but they're, they are part of your experience that is telling you what it is. But is that your experience? Or is that just your thought telling you what it is? They're two different things. So thought is saying that it's solid and dense, but what's my actual experience? My actual experience of this lectern, if I do this, my actual experience, putting all thoughts and, and memories and all the rest of it aside, my actual experience is a sensation on my knuckle and a sound in my ear and a sight in my eye. And by the way, if I close my eyes, close my eyes it goes down to just two things. It goes down to a sound and a sensation on my knuckle, and they both disappear like that. That's my experience of the lectern, and that's not solid. Okay, are you with me? That's, I really put my, my thoughts aside, and that's all my experience is. Then I notice that thought comes along and conjures a story about a lecture, lectern out of these two little tiny data points that were come and gone just so quickly. Um, and there's, then, there's the, then there's this weird disjunction, like just noticing how my, how my mind is constantly making up a story about continuity and solidity and stability and density and location and all that based on some pretty meager dense, uh, data points. Like if I close my eyes, you guys all disappear and you become a memory at that point to me. That's my actual experience. Now the Buddha instructs us all to practice that way many, many times in the suttas. He says... Notice the seeing is only the seeing, and the hearing only the hearing, and the touching only the touching. In other words, he's saying put thoughts aside and just notice what your experience is. Then go ahead and notice how story makes a, thoughts make a story, but those are different. Now, to the non-dual. The way that this experience feeds into non-dual for me, or is, is actually an experience of non-duality, is simply that... Um, if I look to the essence of what the, the sound is, let's just take the sound for a second, that sound is something that happens in my experience, and if I look deeper into that sound, what do I find? Do I find any soundness there? You know, and I gotta put the, the oscilloscope things and everything else aside, it's like, well, oh, the sound was there for a second and then it's gone. What, what, what was it? What it essentially was, was the essence of it was, because it appeared in my consciousness, it was stayed there for a while, then it was gone. The essence of it is a knowing. There's a knowing of it. That's the only, that's the only substance that's actually there, is just a knowing. And by the way, the sensation created on my knuckle was also a, is a knowing. It's a knowing of a sensation. And that also is gone very quickly. But I can say for sure there was a knowing of it. And you, you can proceed step like, stepwise through your entire experience in this way, and the only thing you ever know or experience is knowing. This is something Sayadaw teaches. The only thing you ever experience is just knowing. It doesn't matter if the thing is said to be solid or you know, gas or liquid or maybe it's music or maybe, it's the, the, maybe you're holding marbles in your hand or drinking a water or whatever. It's all knowing. Insofar as everything sort of abstracts down to that, that's, there's only one thing. That's, that's a non-dual. And the intimacy comes in because it's all happening right here. 
It's all happening in one awareness. Sounds happen here, tastes happen here, sights happen here, everything. Perceptions, uh, emotions, it's all happening here. It's all happening together. For instance, right now, all of you are happening in the same consciousness that I'm experiencing. It's happening in the same consciousness as the feelings in my body, as the thoughts in my mind. When you say something, it enters into that same space. That's, that's intimacy to me. That's, not, that, and that's non-dual intimacy because there's no separation. I would argue that uh, the space of relationship mm-hmm. is the space of intimacy. And I don't know if merging is the right word, mm. but there has to be a palpable energetic exchange that is uh, open-hearted or something between us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a little bit different, I think, of a model than the languaging I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, cause yeah. There, because there is a little bit of a merge in uh-huh. a relationship where I take you in yeah. and you take me in. Yeah, right. For real connection. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. And I would only say that, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thing to try to make uh, language structures, you know, uh, align. Um, Based on what you just said, I, I, I don't have a problem with recognizing that, for instance, like your energy right now is coming to me, and I'm recognizing whatever I recognize, however it appears to me, however it feels to me, I recognize it as part of, my, as, as part of the overall ex, uh, experience that I'm having. And I'm to some degree aware of the energy that I have, which you might be picking up as well, and it's all happening for me in the same space. And, and you see how the, the, they're different in the same way that like a sound and a sensation is different, but they're still happening for me within this one consciousness. And there is a heightened sense of um, care. Because if I feel, and I make an effort to feel sometimes too, that your energy is in me, then it's not different for me and I pay more attention to it than if I was saying, oh, you're you and I'm me, you know? And that's the preciousness of this thing that people are calling non-duality, whatever you put onto it. If I feel that your energy is here and is part of this wider me, I will pay attention to it and care for it, you know? Yeah. Boy, maybe it's time for one or two more if I don't talk too much. Can I just get some clarification on when you said, uh, when you sit in meditation and you search for what it is that you like or find positive in it? Because I think I probably misunderstand that. Because to me that sounds like craving. Yeah, right. And it can be. It for sure can be. So this is one of these tight ropes that we walk in meditation. And... Um, um, you, you don't, you, you, it, it would be a great practice to ask whether you're grasping after the pleasure of meditation and whether you're hanging on to it. You know, that's a good thing to notice. Um, in the teachings, it actually says, you know, that pleasure that you feel, 
will pass on just like everything else does and it'll change it'll change into a different quality and then that change will into another different quality into another different quality and there's a bit of a map that's given you know the buddha love maps and it'll change and so the map is there to say uh it's not there it's not there for you to like be you know trying really hard to have all the different experiences and notice uh, notice how it all lines up with the words given in the map but rather to just be sensitive that no object ever stays the same ever so and we have to really become skillful in relationship to that experience that no matter what we're experiencing is going to pass on so but nevertheless it is there to be noticed that that it's it seems to be inherent in in life itself that when we return awareness to the present moment that that triggers in some kind of natural cyclical way or process way it will it will trigger a a pleasure a, a sense of pos- positiveness and wholesomeness and strength and solidity i'm a mountain i'm a river Whew, it's great you know and, oh man no that's why i'm here because i wanted to be a mountain you know i almost said fuck again <laughs> just for emphasis i'm really going for the record tonight no but you get you know what i mean but but then it can get graspy and actually this is the big thing that teachers will say and of course it's true you we can get really attached to the pleasure of samadhi and they just hang out there and then we fall asleep and we're not doing the investigation that's one re- that's one reason why investigation is right there in number 2 so you don't fall asleep you you keep asking questions yeah maybe just one more hey bill You know, I was a reporter for 10 years and then at the times and another tenant at Bloomberg. So, I get I get swear words in my conditioning. I can't get them out. So, my sorry, question but... is or maybe you can help me filter it down yeah. is um like we all have the self-identity inwardly or outwardly. Yeah. And outwardly we process themes like through media and uh, our outward experience. And I'm wondering through your journey you were trained as a journalist and my learning is through the news and the process of like that and i wondered how you observed of your training and your personal journey it did that help or is there conflict between with my training? identifying as a role of a journalist for example yeah and how you evolved to where you are yeah. is that difficulty or as you look outwardly is there conflict or synergy or well it's been it's been huge well I'll give you a a bridged answer but you know if you work at the New York Times for example and then the same thing it was the same thing was true at Bloomberg also I mean if you're in a position of privilege and power it's very easy to identify with that because you get all the perks that come from identifying with it and it's real easy to start thinking wow I really am that person it was actually it took me a year after I left the New York Times to stop answering the phone Doug McGill in New York Times. I thought that was my last name, you know. And I also got really angry when people didn't answer my phone calls when I left the Times because I was so used to every single person including the governor, the mayor, the everybody just answering and returning my calls, you know. But then I would just call like the person down the street and they wouldn't answer my call and I get all huffy like, "Geez." You know. It got became that privilege became part of my identity, you know. And um And I'll just say one other thing on that too which was 
that I also, this, this relates a little bit more to the actual meat of practice, but I identified so strongly with anger and rage as a journalist, and it served me so well. I was a, I was a journalist. I, I, they made me a staff reporter at age 24. Why? Because I was fearless. You know? And I was fearless because I was pissed. Okay? So now I, I can call it back. You can probably feel it. Why wouldn't we be pissed in this society? There's a lot of reasons. You know? And, oh, it can really feel good. You can feel, oh, man, the adrenaline's going and all kinds of... You know, and then I, I found a way to channel it and get it get published. Story. I got on the front page. I got on the front page. I called Mayor Koch. I called, you know, Mario Cuomo. I did this. I did that. And it was all on this, you know, anger. And um, it burned me out, you know. And, um, and I, really, I realized without being able to articulate it, and I'm just now really in a certain way, um, I was really identifying with that, with that, you know, with anger. I was the righteous, you know, uh, sword-wielding, you know, firebrand, you know. Uh, but it got to be really uncomfortable. And um, it was bad. It was hard on my relationships and a bunch of other things. And, and when, the, when, when, it, when the time came in my life where I actually had a chance to, like, shift over and try to identify, to at least identify with something more healthy as opposed to completely dropping identification, which I'm still, <laughs> I don't know, that's a, but I think I'm identifying with healthier things. And, um, and so, yeah, that's how it, that's how it's, how this question of identification has worked out in my professional and personal life to some degree. I hope that answers your question partly anyway. Thank you. So, I think we're a little, a little past nine, so thanks, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.